I couldn't pick up my guitar anymore without feeling the expectation that I needed to put together another band. I needed to record something that went viral. I needed to get on stage. I needed to be a famous musician. I needed people to hear my music, you know? And it was all because I think I was trying to fill some hole in myself. Hello and a warm welcome to the stories we tell. I'm Nitishanti, a teacher and facilitator of conscious living here at Roundlass. On this show, we share the gift of illuminating stories. Each week, you'll hear a true story from me and a special guest on a universal theme. Stories of self-acceptance, overcoming inconceivable odds, embracing change, and recognizing our limitless nature while honoring our humanity. Today's theme is ego. On our path towards enlightenment, we are inevitably going to wrestle with our own egos. While some strive to be free of ego at all times, this is easier said than done. Still others confuse ego with self-esteem. If you fight for compensation at work or equality in a relationship, is that your ego running wild? Maybe we should be asking the larger questions when it comes to ideas of self. What is your sense of self tied up in? How do you define your own worth? And how do we avoid the temptation of acting purely out of self-interest? I'd like to share a couple of stories from my life experience. When I was 23 years old, I ordained as a monk and I went to Northeast Thailand. The process of becoming a monk in the tradition, you don't just become a monk without getting your parents' permission. It took me about three, four months to get my parents to give me their approval. And then I went to this monastery called Vatpa Nanachat, an international forest monastery. A few months in, we went to a remote forest where we were going to spend the summer, summertime. It took about three days of walking to get there. And while I was there, I noticed a very strong voice emerge within me, really challenging what I was doing with my time there. Had I really come there out of genuine wish to grow spiritually or was I running away from my responsibilities? I noticed that in order to come to Thailand, I needed to get a two-way ticket. So the date of expiry of that ticket was approaching. In fact, if I left just that day, I could still catch the flight back home. And I noticed this big voice of doubt coming up within me saying that I was being very selfish to leave my parents behind, leave my younger brother behind and just focusing on what I wanted. And I went through four or five hours of deep inner conflict where I really challenged myself and questioned myself and I wasn't sure of myself. And I think the only thing that got me through that was just this pure resilience, just bearing it and not allowing myself to be swept away by those strong thoughts. And I'm so grateful that I was able to get through that because it led to six years of powerful experiences, practicing with wonderful teachers and having wonderful companions. And that whole experience gave me an insight into the voice of the ego, which tends to be quite demanding and quite pushy and quite loud versus the voice of intuition, which tends to be quiet and calm. It may not even be a voice, it's more like a knowing. And one more quick experience I'd like to share before we hear from our guest today is a time when I was in Hyderabad and there was a small gathering and someone shared something about the Buddha. And I pointed out that that's not exactly what had happened. There was a that, that, so there was some detail in what they were saying that was not, not quite right. 
and they were very persistent they said no, no that, that 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 is what happened and i noticed my ego come up it was like okay so who's been a monk i've been a monk for 6 years i've studied these teachings i know the ancient language and uh, i could feel how my ego came up and i was like you know who's been the monk here <laughs> and i right away i noticed look at this you know i was not there i mean who knows i mean this is just thing i've read they've read something somewhere i've read something somewhere and there was another a uh, little example of how uh, the thinking mind the identity was so strong in that moment so in to my mind ego is when i'm believing my thoughts when i'm uh, hung up on my identity and i'm hung up on my preferences that's the world of ego and when there is witnessing of those things when there's awareness then one is operating from a from a more spacious place so i'd like to now introduce our guest today we're honored to speak with jay vidyarthi Jay is a meditation teacher here at Round Glass who works to restore a depleted natural resource attention. He is the founder of Still Ape, which is the world's first user experience design studio focused exclusively on mindfulness, compassion and well-being. However, not too long before he was working in the world of digital wellness, Jay had dreams of being a musician, not just a musician, a rock star. He dropped out of college in his early 20s to tour with his band but soon Jay found out that his rock star expectations were more about feeding his ego than putting art into the world. Jay, warm welcome. Thanks Nitya and thank you for sharing your story. Um yeah, let's start from the beginning. Um you know it's funny I even feel my self-awareness and ego kind of prickle at the word rock star. It just feels like there's like a tinge of like <laughs> awkward like shame or something and then I notice that and I let it pass, but it's like it's still there, you know, and it's really funny. Um but right from the beginning, you know, my parents, actually my mom, you mentioned Hyderabad, my mom grew up in Hyderabad, my parents grew up in India, immigrated to Canada and when I was just before a teen like maybe 11 or 12 years old they put me in piano lessons and i remember i went to some lady's house and she showed me the scales and the keyboard and i hated it like it was just super boring i didn't understand why we were doing it and uh be- basically begged my parents to uh let me quit and so i quit that and that was around 11 or 12 and i basically concluded which you'll find out soon was an error but i concluded that i was not a musical person that was my conclusion from that being 11 and 12 and being naive like i was like here's music i tried it not for me i'm not a musical person and so what that led is i i went into school and when i was in high school i declined opportunities to join bands like like the school band you know i didn't really want to take the music classes or anything like that i was just like i've, I've tried that it's not for me I thought that was the end of it, but in my late teens, uh there was some music that I had heard from a particular artist uh that just it moved me. I really loved it. And it was guitar-driven music. And so on a whim one day, unknowing at the you sort of pointed out this, unknowing the the way that this decision would affect the trajectory of my life, I went on the early internet, found a used you know classical guitar for $90 or something and I went and I bought it and I brought it home and I took to it like a fish to water and there was no one telling me to practice scales or chords I was learning my favorite songs 
I remember learning one of my father's favorite songs and playing it for him. And I just remember him being like, whoa. And there's this first taste of that feeling of like connecting with people through music. And so I continued to, to play. And honestly, I don't think I ever thought of it as practice. It was really just fun. It was just something I did because it was a fun release and I loved the sound. I ended up continuing. I met some people when I was in university and also my brother was kind of getting into listening to music as well. And I was bored with school. And so we started to play a lot of music and we started to get a little bit of a following in Montreal where we were. And so I dropped out of school and uh, even worse for my traditional Indian parents who were pulling their hairs out at this decision, I convinced my brother to drop out of school too, uh, to be the drummer in the band. And so it was, uh, you know, we were cut off, let's put it that way. Um, we played music, we toured for a while and we absolutely had ego-driven dreams of being on bigger and bigger stages. And it was seeming to happen. We were getting bigger following, we were playing bigger shows. And then it all spectacularly vanished. Like we recorded our album, we started to get an ego battles with each other and the shows weren't getting as big as they wanted to be. And we weren't very good at the division of labor. There's a lot of egos sort of rolling around and we basically exploded and fell apart. And it just, you know, even to this day, I think if we had had more balance and more persistence, that band probably could have gone somewhere, but we were just not ready. Our egos were, were overtaking our view of the music, our view of each other, our desires for what we wanted to do, as well as the illusions of what a musician is supposed to be in this society. Somehow playing to 200 people was not enough, even though it is a miraculous and probably a peak experience of my life, right? But somehow at that time, I couldn't see it as miraculous. I saw it as not enough. It needed to be more. Mm. And so the band fell apart. We moved on with our lives. I went back to school. I had a lot more agency in school. I was able to, like, I realized I was more in control of my life. So I chose things I wanted to do, not what other people expected of me. And I got a lot of deep, insight about how to operate in the world from that musical experience. But the music itself was starting to kind of fall apart. I couldn't pick up my guitar anymore without feeling the expectation that I needed to put together another band. I needed to record something that went viral. I needed to get on stage. I needed to be a famous musician. I needed people to hear my music, you know? And it was all because I think I was trying to fill some hole in myself. And around this time, I started to explore and go on retreats and deep meditation practice. And this started to come up. It started to become clear as these thoughts arose. Instead of being in them, I noticed these musical thoughts more from a distance. Like, whoa, why am I so wrapped up about this? And it got really kind of confusing for me. And for a while there, it was actually even harder to pick up my instrument because I would pick up my guitar and I would immediately notice these thoughts coming up. And I would feel very frustrated and, and kind of disappointed with myself. And so I, I pretty much stopped playing guitar for at least a year or two. Like, you know, I tried, but it just wasn't working. And then I went on, I think probably my second or third extended silent retreat. And I was practicing and all of a sudden, you know, I think I had some reflections about music and musicianship. And I think I was, I was, I was just kind of surprised by this image that just appeared in my imagination, in the sort of visual thinking part of my mind. And my teachers had skillfully guided me that when like a window of opportunity arises to sort of drop what you're paying attention to and look at that. 
So I shifted my attention from my breath or whatever, and I, I started like, what is this image? And the image started to become clearer and clearer. And what it was, was an image from my own perspective, looking down at my hands, playing a guitar. And my hands were extremely withered, like the hands, if you can picture them in your mind, of like an 85 year old man, like really weak and shaky. Like I remember visually that my fingers were shaking. And I watched myself try to form what any guitarist will know is a G chord, like a certain uh, position of your hand that requires you to sort of stretch your hand across the fretboard. And, and I couldn't do it. And my hands were shaking and I couldn't form the chord. And I felt waves of emotion through my body. And I ended the meditation session kind of in an energetic fervor. And I went for a walk, as I usually do when this happens. <laughs> I've learned that about the practice. And I started to integrate what had happened here. And I realized that what this image was telling me, the insight that I had come to, was that that was the goal of playing music, was that I could still be trying to play in that moment, that at some day I would not be able to play anymore. And that if I could just practice and play and enjoy for the sake of the sound and the gift it is to play music, it wouldn't matter what I recorded or what I played, it was a personal pursuit for me and music shifted in that moment to be a part of my spiritual practice as a part of my professional pursuit. And it remains to this day something that I can kind of explore to get a sense of where I'm at and to treat as a spiritual practice. And to this day, that is still a way that I deal with my ego. And for example, we moved recently and for the first time ever, I'm out of the city. And so I have a little bit more space and I have a music room and I'm confronted with this ability. Like I put all my instruments in this music room. And all of a sudden my mind starts to go like, well, I need a mixing board, I need microphones, I wanna turn this into a <laughs> studio. And, but now because of this experience, I'm able to say, wait a minute, like I don't need to produce anything. This can just be yeah. a meditation room for me. This can be a playground for me. And so every time I go in there, I'm still wrestling with that ego, but I'm so much more aware of it. And I've been practicing for years now, I'm so much more skilled at letting that come and go and connecting back with the joy of playing music just for fun, just enjoying the sound and making sound because it grounds me and it makes me, you know, helps me feel centered after a busy day. And the most beautiful kind of like conclusion to this story is now I have a son, he's three years old and he comes into that music room with me and I get the gift of not just showing him instruments, but showing him that instruments themselves are a joy. You know, I've written a little bit about this and the phrase that I often use that I sort of have grounded this is that music has kind of become a mirror for me. That like for other people, I'm sure it's a career and it's a professional pursuit, that's fine. But for me, I go into that music room and it's like a mirror for my soul. I know by the way I'm playing and the way I'm reacting to how I'm playing, whether I'm caught up in ego right now or whether I can be grounded, but best of all, after a 30 minute jam session or an hour jam session, even with myself, I can dissolve my ego and come back to just listening to that sound. Just like the ancient monks listened to singing bulls, I can listen to that sound and ground myself. So music has very much been a parallel journey for my spiritual practice. And I think, you know, anyone who grows up in a media fueled world like this, you know, I shudder to think how many of us are caught up in illusions about being rock stars or, you know, hero startup founders or Nobel Prize winning scientists or brilliant artists or filmmakers. But 
if that starts, then that's beautiful. But if that starts to lead us to forget the joy of the craft itself and what it means to just be a human being, I think we're missing something. And that balance, I think, is something that I constantly strive for every day when I go in that music room, but also here at my desk when I'm at work or when I'm with my family or just walking around the world. It's been a, been a very valuable teacher for me. It's amazing to just just listen to your unfolding and how each of these experiences in some way challenged you, in some way it opened up a new dimension for you. And uh, I like what you said about how it's not that you can't produce amazing music or become famous, but that shouldn't be the first priority. The first priority has to be the love of your craft, has to be the real passion that got you into it in the first place. And then we can, um, amazing things may happen, but it's coming from the right spirit. Otherwise, it becomes. Otherwise, we can be very disappointed when things don't work out as we had hoped, or in the time frame that we had hoped. Yeah, I think it's about balance, right? Like, a, you know, even if it is the first priority, like, you know, you need to make it in the world, mm-hmm. and if that's the path you've chosen, and you know, yeah. so I'm not. I'm. I wouldn't go as much to say that it shouldn't be this or it should be that. I would just say that it's about balance. That absolutely, yes. if you want to become a successful musician, you should go and do that, but don't sacrifice yourself by letting it become a part of this like impenetrable ego and there's there's some essential elements about who we are that have been true for thousands of years as human beings and one of them is contemplation that our ancestors spent a lot more time just looking at the beautiful vista or sitting in the cave by the fire they didn't have all the devices you know like they weren't browsing their feeds there's not much to do so you try to get food you try to stay safe you try to stay warm and once you're there you just sit and that's what that's what our ancestor di- uh, ancestors did. And the other thing they did was sing and dance around the fire. And there was no audience. <laughs> there was no audience performer divide. You know, it was just so fundamentally, music is a part of who we are. And that practice is tens of thousands of years old. And the practice of recording music is a hundred years old. And so, in some ways, historically, I think I've just sort of tapped into the historical ancestral root of what music has been to our species for eternity, as opposed to the modern conceptualization of what music is in our current society. Like the rock star illusion is 100% fueled by screens and stories and album covers and, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that, but you have to be able to see through that. I think if, especially if you like me, we're, we're forming an unhealthy, ego-driven relationship with it. And that was me. I don't think everyone is doing that. That's me. I was in that trap. But thankfully, music provided an opportunity to escape that trap within music, but also within my entire life. I want to uh, learn more about your use of technology uh, when it comes to things like mindfulness and attention. And this is, I think, something a lot of us grapple with because sometimes we feel technology is exactly the problem because such a lot of, like you said, we have our devices and that's what's taking us away from just simply sitting, simply being. So tell us more about how you have brought in your your expertise in design and technology into this passion of yours. Sure, yeah. Um, technology isn't inherently problematic really it's reflecting the values we put into creating it and it just so happens in our society we both economically and personally value organization productivity efficiency communication in a kind of superficial sense and so our mainstream technologies focus on those things to uh, an extreme and so the media 
as well as the apps and, you know, uh, web. All of that stuff is basically guiding us towards certain ends and amplifying those values. And it is possible for that to distract us from some other values like well-being, family, connection versus communication, right? Con deeper connection, purpose. And it's scary because our technology can lead us that way. But in my work, I've seen that we can also create technologies that support awareness, support insight, support connection and purpose. And one thing that we need to do as a society is get better at using technology in a more holistic way, not just for productivity. And then the other thing is in our personal lives, um, again, finding that balance. Like we don't need to throw our phones in the lake. Well, probably some of us do, to be real. But most of us probably don't need to throw our phones in the lake, but we do have to manage our relationship with them. And, you know, if you think about the story I shared about music and, and kind of where it ended in my music room here at this new house that we've just moved into, you know, there's that moment where I'm like, I need to buy a mixer. I need to buy microphones, right? And that's a certain technology that for me personally, not for everyone, but for me personally, is going to feed the ego side of my music because I'm gonna start trying to produce and share things online and I'm gonna get depressed when they only have 10 listens and it's not gonna be a good thing. But let's not forget that the electric guitar and the amp itself are also technology, which I'm using to play and enjoy and connect with my son and connect with myself, right? So right here, you're seeing a skillful decision about which technology I'm letting into that music room. So if we take that metaphor and say, the music room is your heart and your soul and your mind, it's the same thing I do with my phone and my devices. I'm skillfully choosing which technologies to let into my life. And I think these practices of like mindfulness and compassion are essentially activist, which is the word I use, uh, but they're essential to this journey because you can't make those skillful decisions if you can't discern the effect these technologies are having on you. So if you haven't experientially noticed that looking at your phone in bed is disrupting your sleep, you're not gonna be motivated to do anything about it. But when you start these practices, you start to see clearly, oh, the nights that I tend to browse TikTok before going to bed are the nights when I can't sleep. I need to do something mm. about that. And that's where, you know, the motivation comes from. So that discernment, that yeah. intentional decision-making and the choice of which technologies we let into our body, mind, and heart. Tell us a little bit about Sonic Cradle. Yeah, so Sonic Cradle, before Sonic Cradle, which is a project uh, which I'll describe in a moment, before that, I had two lives. I had a professional life as a technology designer and a personal life where I was playing music and flirting with mindfulness practices and my, you know, cultural upbringing. My parents were into meditation and things like that. And Sonic Cradle was my first attempt to bridge those worlds. And so what it was, was after a lot of research and iteration and exploration in an academic setting, I sort of followed a kind of calling of integration of my different lives and created what is essentially one of the earliest mindfulness technologies. This was before the apps and things like that. And basically it's a, it was a, it was a sensory deprivation chamber where your body is suspended horizontally and you have sensors on your abdomen and thorax measuring your breathing in real time. And you're surrounded by speakers which are connected to a library of music that were created by sound artists around the world. And basically you breathe in different ways to compose a soundscape all around you in complete sensory deprivation. So you're completely immersed in the sound. 
And the idea, it's not just a cool, fun exhibit. The idea was actually scientifically grounded in some of the early neuroscience of mindfulness to explore how you might cultivate a deep breath awareness and a playful, non-judgmental exploration of awareness without any of the self-judgment and feelings of failure that tend to arise in an early meditation session where your mind wanders and you feel lost. I'd like to now inquire into the idea of attention activism. Please tell us about that and what inspired it and your work around that. Yeah. Um, so as you've heard, I'm bridging these worlds of technology and mindfulness, and it's, it's a rare combination I've found. And so as I've done this, I've started to see things in a certain way that I realized were not really out there. And so I started writing. In 2016, I wrote my first article about attention activism. And uh, since then, been talking about it in various places and, and sharing it, including Round Glass um, and, other, and other venues as well. Um, but basically, I have seen that the effects that our technology have on us, which are now more ubiquitously known as the attention economy. Uh, but in 2016, that term wasn't quite um, you know, as well known. But basically these large tech companies, you know, I don't think they're villains. I think it's an unintended consequence for 90% for of the time, but have created technologies that command our attention. And advertising is a part of this as well. And the basic reality that we live in is that attention is worth money. Attention is commodified. That, you know, Nitya, if you and I have a conversation and 10 people listen to it, it's fun. And if a hundred people listen to it, Oh, it's interesting. If a thousand people listen to it, it has potential. If 10,000 people listen to it, it's a career. If a hundred thousand people listen to it, we're starting to become celebrities. If a million people listen to it, like our lives are changed forever. And it all is about the amount of attention that we have cultivated around ourselves. So this is a dangerous situation for our egos. It's a dangerous situation for our minds because we're constantly trying to grapple with each other's attention. We're fragmenting our minds. And those of us who have practiced a lot of mindfulness see the relationship between, you know, attention and mindfulness and well-being. And so we are uniquely positioned to see the fact that this is a disastrous circumstance for our state of mind. And I think that's best exemplified by the past 10 years seeing a huge spike in mental health conditions like depression, anxiety, as well as suicide, self-harm. And so the science is young on drawing causation here, but the early science is suggesting that this is a, there is a relationship. Smartphones became a part of our kind of daily lives around 2010, especially with kids. And so I don't need to wait for the conclusive science because of what I've seen. And I know that the people on the other side of this, you know, for example, the people that are creating the news feeds that are destroying democracy and, and polluting our minds, they're not waiting for scientific conclusions before they release their uh, products in the world. And so I have reframed it to a form of activism that I believe that myself, fellow mindfulness teachers, fellow technologists for well-being, those who practice compassion in education, in healthcare, in social work, we are part of a movement that I coined as attention activism because I believe it is an engaged aspect of how we need to destabilize the status quo and the attention economy for our own well-being and for our societal well-being. And I think the important part to recognize about that is I, I just shared a bunch of lofty ideas, but I really do believe 
that if we take a moment right now, if we just pause for a moment and, and notice our breath for five seconds, I believe that moment is a form of activism. That in that moment, you are reclaiming your ability to choose what you want to pay attention to. You're training your ability to resist the forces in the world around you that are trying to pull your attention away to things that will profit large conceptual corporate entities as opposed to the general heart-centered well-being and connection of humankind. So I really believe the stakes are that high, which is why I do what I do. Tell us just anything from your time at the Monastic Academy. What were your insights into the ego? And of course, the spiritual ego as well. When you're there, you're dedicating yourself to this practice. Anything you'd like to talk about from that, that time? Yeah, I think the experience that comes to mind is, you know, um, I found myself writing some poetry when I was there. And, um, you know, I'm a songwriter, so that's not new for me. I usually write lyrics to songs, but I hadn't really written poetry before. And there was a book there of some traditional Zen poetry, and I was really inspired by the economy of words, like very few words that could completely send my mind for a spin, right? And I wrote a poem and I brought it to the teacher, Soryu, for our dokusan, which is the one-on-one -on -one interview in a Zen retreat. And Zen retreats are intense, right? You know, you were in a monastery, you know, but like for listeners, like, you know, you're in silence, you're meditating like 10 plus hours a day and, you know, you're eating only two meals and it's, it's pretty intense. But you also feel very held in a loving community. And so you feel like you can do it even when the times get rough, right? And so I brought this this poem and he his he looked at it he listened to it with those wide aware eyes like i remember i can i can picture his eyes like he's just so present as i said this poem and he was like letting it wash over and then there was this silence and then the silence dragged on and then i noticed myself like i i noticed that i wanted his approval like I, and I, I don't know if he did that on purpose but the silence he just looked at me and and I in the in the minutes after I shared this poem, just like being on stage as a musician, I noticed this like I wanted him to tell me the poem was good, and I did, I watched that and I was like, well, well, this is like my ego. This is the same part of me that wants to be sharing my music online on stage. This is, you know, I want. And so I let that pass. It's almost like he noticed when it passed, and he noticed me settle back in. And then he chose to speak, and he just said the poem back to me. And then he added a question to the end of the poem, a question about the poem. And for the next, I think this was about halfway through my two months there, for the next month, my entire meditation practice was an inquiry into the question about my own poem. And it totally wow. unraveled so much ego for me. Like, like it started at the poem, it went to music, it went to life, it went to family, it went to everything until I reached a really dark place, in fact. Um, you know, I, I look back on it using that T.S. Eliot quote, the dark night of the soul. Like I really was in a dark place for about 24 hours where it almost felt deconstructive. Like my entire reality was deconstructed and it was depressing me. It felt like everything was pointless and meaningless. And from the ashes of that deconstruction, I started to see quite the opposite that because there is no meaning to these concepts, because this ego is an illusion, because all of this stuff is, is sort of broken, that in fact, the things we do have, like the beauty of this tree in front of me right now, 
you know, seeing you through a miracle of a laptop computer from halfway around the world, that in fact, everything is a miracle. And I started to rebuild a sense of identity of more interconnection and more gratitude and appreciation as a result of that intensive practice and also that work with that teacher who had the skill and presence to reflect my own ego back to me by saying nothing. It was kind of mind blowing and it was a transformative experience for me for sure. So powerful. This mirror-like quality of uh, attention and of, of these teachers who are not trying to give us any lesson. They're just holding the space and we kind of see a reflection of our own mind, mind at work. It's, it's, I recognize that with some of my teachers as well. So mm. thank you for sharing that. Tell me about, one more, one more time, coming back to the ego and what you just mentioned, the stepping out of the, the train of thought and just coming into being. Uh, you gave many examples from your life uh, for example, the, the rock star fantasy that you had and, 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 and then the ripples of that in the rest of your life. On a practical level, as our listeners and each of us get caught up in our thoughts and our identities, get caught up in the world of the ego, how can they again step back into this light of awareness, light of presence? How can they come back to that? I find that in the modern mindfulness movement, there's a beautiful sharing of some of the practices and the techniques that can help with this, right? I'm sure many listeners are familiar with paying attention to your breath or noticing body sensations or even reflecting on compassionate phrases or any of these types of practices. I think the aspects, there, there are a few aspects that are not being shared as widely. And I think, you know, compassion is one of them. Um, but I think another element that I think we need to get better at sharing and that I would invite any listener to consider would be effortlessness. That there is a sense that like what it means to be effortless means to relax. But in fact, the way I think about effortlessness, it means to accept, to not try to change anything about what you're experiencing. And sometimes the biggest obstacle to stepping out of that river of thinking and, and, and getting some space from it is the fact that we're trying so hard to step out of it. And that when we're in it, we're resisting it. We're trying to stop the river altogether. But in fact, taking a lighter, gentler touch with a bit of self-compassion, we find ourselves saying, let's watch those moments when we're out of the river. Let's watch the moments when we're in the river and not try to force this and let it percolate because fundamentally, awareness is who you are. And so you don't have to actively create something. You simply have to get out of your own way. And so that moment where meditation becomes another thing on your to-do list, where you beat yourself up because you didn't do your 30 minutes this morning, or you didn't do your five minutes this morning, whatever, wherever you're at, one minute, it, you know, that moment is not helpful. Beating yourself up is not helpful. This is not just something on your to-do list. It's a way of life. It's a habit of mind. It takes time to cultivate. So we have to live in this paradox of trying to cultivate these new skills while also accepting everything the way it is. And somewhere on that precipice, on that balance between effort to get somewhere and effortlessness and effortless acceptance of the present moment, somewhere between there is, I think, the, uh, the next step for a lot of people who are sort of just taking this from the apps perspective, especially if you haven't been on a retreat or uh, gone on a kind of long-term practice and really taken a deep dive in this stuff. Is there anything else you'd like to uh, say, Jay, as we conclude our discussion today? You know, when you were sharing your story about 
the the moment where someone quoted the Buddha wrong and you said like, you know, who's the monk here? And like, I found myself laughing and I think there's there's something there. I see you laughing. I hear you laughing right now too. And it's there's something about the shift that happens when you befriend your ego that it becomes kind of funny, <laughs> you know? And it's important that we don't lose that humor, that there's something funny. Like I can kind of laugh that I was 21 and I saw all these music videos and I just like wanted to be a rock star. Like, I think that's funny. And I think sometimes the other thing is that this stuff can start to feel really serious. Uh, but fundamentally, it's kind of like funny. You know, there's nothing wrong with ego. It's it's part of who we are, but it's funny. It's not, you don't have to be so serious about it and inhabit it. And so I, I heard you laughing when you shared that story and that in that joy, I saw the depth of your practice that you, you know, can laugh at your own ego, uh, which is why comedians <laughs> might be some of the most enlightened bunch of them all. But that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> true, true, true. Like, and like uh, uh, one of my teachers would say that to, to, to not teach is a mistake and to teach is a mistake. And it's, it's fascinating that so, so, so to teach is to assume that you know something more than the other person, that you, you assume that the person is not doing it right, not doing their life right. And then to not teach is also a mistake because then you may actually have something really valuable to offer and you're not offering it. So basically, at the moment you come into the world of doing and you, and you imagine that you're the doer who's doing uh, everything from that moment on is a mistake. And yet, even though it's one continuous mistake, at the deepest level, there is no mistake. It's in fact for me that I like how Byron Katie, one of my teachers, she misheard the, the phrase Namaste. She misheard it as no mistake. So that, that's a great way of looking at Namaste. We say in India Namaste all the all the time. We say Namaste. No mistake. No mistake. It's all happening exactly the way it should. And to me, that's the that's the world which is takes away the tension of the ego. Wants everything to happen perfectly. You know, by now I should have done this and achieved this and become this. And and what's wrong with me? And what's wrong with you? And what's wrong with the world? And uh, and, the, and the world of presence is just like you were seeing that squirrel a while back. It's everything is happening the way it should. It's so deep, with, deeply filled with uh, with meaning and non-meaning. I mean, everything is just complementing and completing it itself. Mm. So really enjoyed this conversation with you, Jay. Likewise, thank you for having me on, Nitya. Really great to uh, connect with you. Thank you for joining us today, Jay, and thank you all for listening in. If any of you are interested in looking into more of Jay's work, you can find him here on Round Glass or at jayvidyarthi.com. That's J-A-Y-V-I-D-Y-A-R-T-H-I.com. And we'll be back next Thursday with a brand new episode of Stories We Tell. Don't forget to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're looking for new ways to explore conscious living, then please subscribe and join me on the Round Glass Living app. In addition to this podcast, you can find courses, classes, recipes, music, and more to help you make positive changes while doing what you love. Until next time, I'm Nitishanti. Goodbye. The stories we tell is a part of Round Glass. Holistic well-being at your fingertips. Find out more at roundglass.com.